In the past several sessions, we've been talking about virtues that are in many ways distinctly Christian. Joy, peace, patience. But now we've come to a virtue that seems less uniquely Christian than really just a universally admired trait. Today, we're talking about kindness. And everyone thinks kindness is a good idea. And just look at all the children's books and TV shows that are published. They're constantly encouraging children to be nice to each other, to show kindness, to show compassion when other children are hurt or share your toys with one another. And this isn't just for kids. Adults also talk about showing random acts of kindness, doing something for someone for no real reason whatsoever. In fact, there's even an annual day for this. Did you know that? February 17th is officially Random Acts of Kindness Day. But is that what the Apostle Paul means when he says that the fruit of the Spirit is kindness? Is he just referring to some first century equivalent of polite behavior, sharing your toys, random acts of kindness? Well, not exactly. But in order to understand what he means, what kindness is as a Christian virtue, we need to first understand kindness as a quality of God's own character. Remember, all of these fruits that we're talking about from Galatians 5, none of them are just good character traits. They're all qualities, as I said in the first session, qualities of Christ-likeness. So that's where we're going to begin our discussion of kindness, by looking at the way that God in Christ shows kindness toward us. Now, the Old Testament often refers to the kindness of God, and it uses this specific Hebrew word, the word hesed. And you may have heard this word before. It occurs more than 250 times in the Old Testament. It's one of the most common descriptors of God's character. Now, more often than not, it's typically translated as love or sometimes steadfast love or loyal love. But as the Old Testament scholar Chris Wright points out, there is another way to translate this. One of the older ways of translating hesed is loving kindness, a beautiful old English double word that I wish we still used. And often hesed is simply translated as kindness, since it does have that active sense of doing something for another person, something that shows thoughtful love in action. When God acts in kindness, in hesed, it means God is being faithful to his covenant promises paying careful attention to our needs, acting in generous and merciful love, generously providing everything for our blessing and benefit. Didn't I say it is a beautiful word? That's what the Bible means when it speaks of God's kindness. It's not just referring to God having a polite demeanor or a disposition to showing random acts of kindness. God is kind, because he is attentive to the needs of his people, and because he consistently acts in generosity toward them in meeting those needs. You could see this kindness all throughout Israel's history. Whenever they were in trouble, God came to their aid. When they were hungry, he fed them. When they complained and rebelled against him, he forgave them. But it wasn't just in the Old Testament that we learn about God's kindness. The greatest display of God's kindness, in fact, comes in the person of Jesus Christ. 
For it is in Christ more than anywhere else that we see God's unwavering determination to generously and to lovingly meet the needs of his people. That's why the Apostle Paul says in Titus 3 verse 4, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of any works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his own mercy. And for Paul, the arrival of Jesus in our midst is nothing less, he says, than the appearance, the visible appearance of God's loving kindness, God's love toward us in Christ, his generosity in providing the gift of his son to rescue us from poverty and death. That's what it means, that's what we mean when we speak of kindness. It's not politeness, not mere goodwill, but attentive and loving generosity that responds to the distinct and genuine needs of others. And that's why, as one theologian says, this fruit, by its very character, is one of the most outwardly visible fruits of the Christian life. Kindness is neither a state of mind nor an invisible attitude or emotion. Neither do we think people kind simply because they refrain from doing unkind things. Rather, we regard people as kind because they go out of their way to engage in kind actions. Of course, kindness like that can take many forms. Jesus memorably tells the story of a Samaritan who shows kindness to a bruised and battered Jewish man lying on the side of the road. The book of Acts describes the kindness of early Christians when it says that they were selling their possessions and all that they owned in order to provide for those in need. And Paul says that the Christians in Philippi, that they showed him kindness by continually sending people and provisions to care for his needs, even after he had left them and moved on in his mission to another city. But you know, perhaps the most memorable, perhaps the most memorable story of one person showing kindness to another comes from the life of King David. And it happens soon after David is made king. And God has given him victory over King Saul, who had tried to murder him, and also victory over the Philistines, those perpetual enemies of Israel. And everything's going really well for David. And then all of a sudden he asks his advisors a question. Is there still anyone, he says, left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, this is a rather strange question coming from a king. Usually when a new king takes the throne, they go to great lengths to make sure that no descendant of the previous king is left alive. No one who could possibly challenge their claim to the throne. And Saul was David's enemy. He had tried to murder him. But Jonathan, Saul's son, he was David's friend and he had helped David. And David wants to show kindness to someone as a way of thanking Jonathan. So when David asks this question, he's told that there is actually a son of Jonathan who's still alive, a man named Mephibosheth, who was crippled as a child. And so David sends for him. And when Mephibosheth arrives and comes in front of King David, it's pretty clear that he is afraid because after all, he's the only living grandson of King Saul. And no doubt he thinks that David wants to execute him. But David shows him kindness. 
He gives him all the, all the land that had belonged to Saul's family. He gives him servants to help him work the land and bring it to prosperity. And then David goes even further and he actually invites him to be a permanent guest at his own table, just as if he were one of David's own sons. Like I said, it's a, it's a beautiful story. And it's a wonderful illustration of what Paul means when he speaks of kindness. But what about us? How do you and I become people whose lives are characterized by this sort of kindness? How do we cultivate Christ-like and David-like kindness in our own lives? Well, it's not easy, that's for sure. There are serious obstacles in our everyday life that work against kindness. And if we're going to cultivate this virtue, then we need to be clear-eyed about those obstacles. And at the same time, we also need to be clear-eyed about how the gospel itself overcomes those obstacles and actually equips us for a life of kindness. Now, let me explain. The first obstacle I want to talk about is self-sufficiency. You know, we Americans, we are a very self-sufficient bunch. We have a very self-sufficient culture. And that's something that many of us take great pride in. It's one of the reasons why we're so drawn to underdog stories. We love those stories about men and women who were born with nothing, born with very little. Men and women who didn't enjoy the advantages that were given to other people, but yet who through their own hard work and their own determination were able to make something of themselves. And because we admire people, we admire people that don't rely on others people who are able to make it on their own. And that's why even if we want to be helpful, most of us, most of us do not like depending on the help of other people. Most of us do not like asking for help. It's not just because we don't want to inconvenience other people. It's because we like to think of ourselves as independent and self-sufficient. the problem is that this self-sufficient attitude has a tendency to produce a very ungenerous and really unkind spirit. And I was reminded of this recently when I read in the paper the story of a small-town mayor in Texas who, when his town's power went down after a large ice storm, and thousands of the townspeople were left without water and without heat, for days and were calling into the city for assistance, the mayor, the mayor became very agitated and he put out a public statement saying, no one owes you or your family anything, nor is it the local government's responsibility to support you during trying times like this. Sink or swim, it's your choice. I am sick and tired of people looking for a handout. If you don't have electricity, you step up and come up with a game plan to keep your family warm and safe. Only the strong will survive and the weak will perish. Now, as you might imagine, most of the townspeople were outraged by the mayor's response, and rightly so. But his words, his words were also very revealing because he was actually appealing to a common cultural ideal, and he was he was in some ways drawing out its natural implications. In a self-sufficient world, there can be no expectation of kindness. I take care of me and you take care of you. And as the mayor said, 
Only the strong survive. Uh, so that's, that's one great obstacle to kindness in our lives today. It's our love of self-sufficiency and independence. And the second obstacle is very closely related to this. See, we Americans, we're not just self-sufficient. We're also very individualistic. And this attitude that I'm responsible for me and my family, you are responsible for you and your family, now, it wasn't always this way. There's a Harvard social scientist, Robert Putnam. He's written a lot about this individualism in American culture. And he says that in the past, Americans tended to be less individualistic and more cooperative with one another. It used to be that Americans thought that they were responsible not just for the well-being of their own kids, but for all the kids in their town. And he talks about the, the town that he grew up in, Port Clinton, Ohio. And he talks about the day that he graduated high school in 1959 and how almost the entire town showed up for the high school graduation. And the reason that they did, he said, the reason is because family or not, the townspeople thought of all the graduates as our kids. Uh, this sense of belonging and shared responsibility, this is absolutely vital for kindness. In fact, the English word kindness, it's actually directly related to the word that we use to talk about family. The Christian scholar and author Marilyn McIntyre, she talks about this in one of her books. And she says that the word kindness, related to kin, descends directly from the Old English yakund, meaning with the feelings of relatives for each other. Kindness extends our impulse to share with and care for others beyond the claims of the family we recognize as kin to those who have only the claim on us of their fellow humanity and their need. Now, unfortunately, as Robert Putnam observes, that's not the way that we live these days. We are very individualistic. When we use the phrase, our kids, we don't mean all the youth of our community. We usually just mean our own biological children. And that's the extent of kin for many of us. And unfortunately, that's also often the limit of our kindness. So how do we resist these obstacles to kindness? How do we fight against self-sufficiency and individualism and cultivate this, this grace of Christ-like kindness in our lives? Well, maybe this sounds overly simple, but the primary way that the Apostle Paul worked to cultivate kindness among early Christians, it wasn't simply by suggesting ways that they could help each other out and serve one another. It was by reminding them of the truths of the gospel. And what truths are those? Well, first, the gospel tells us that we are not, in fact, self-sufficient. Now, that Texas mayor, he said he was sick and tired of people looking for handouts. But the gospel says that whether we like it or not, whether we admit it or not, none of us are actually self-sufficient. We all live off of handouts. Now, that's something that Paul regularly reminded the early Christians of. As he put it to the Christians in Corinth, what do you have that you did not receive? And Paul's not just talking about the salvation of our souls here. 
According to him, and really the rest of the Bible, there is nothing that we have that has not in fact been given to us. We are not self-sufficient. We live and exist as the beneficiaries of kindness. And as such, we're obligated to respond to others in the same way. Now, Paul is very clear about this for these early Christians. On another occasion, he asked those same Christians in Corinth, he asked them to contribute financially in a very generous and sacrificial way to this collection that's being taken up for some poor Christians in Jerusalem. And what does he say to the Corinthians to persuade them of this? Once again, it's not just a suggestion that they should be kind. Once again, he reminds them that they, in fact, live off a handout. For you know, he says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Now, the implication of this is pretty clear. You depend, Paul is saying, on the kindness of Christ, so you ought to respond by showing kindness and generosity toward others in return. And that's one way that the gospel cultivates kindness in us, by reminding us that we aren't self-sufficient. But the gospel, it also addresses that second obstacle that I talked about, that problem of individualism. And like I said, individualism means that we tend to limit our responsibility we tend to limit our responsibility just to ourselves and our immediate family. That's who I'm responsible for. But according to the gospel, that's not the only kin for baptized Christians. The New Testament says that baptized Christians have been bound to one another. And you know, it often uses the language of family to emphasize that. It calls the church a household. It talks about Christians as brothers and sisters to one another. Paul himself talks about himself as a spiritual father to others, and he talks about older Christians in the community as acting as spiritual mothers and fathers to those who are younger. And all this means that we can't just think of ourselves as individuals. Christ has bound us to one another. We are whether we recognize it or not, we are kin. We are family. And so we are responsible to meet one another's needs. I like how the, uh, how the Baptist theologian Russell Moore puts this. He says that a Christian opening his home to an unwed mother or an unemployed man or to a struggling teenager in the foster care system is not an act of charity or heroism. In this, we simply do what people do for their families, with no sense of obligation in return. We are family. That means no Christian lives alone, and no Christian dies alone. There's no such thing as a single Christian. So there you have it. The gospel says that we are not, in fact, self-sufficient, and that we are not just a bunch of individuals responsible for ourselves. We are those who live off a handout. We are those to whom God and Christ has shown kindness. He has made us family, and now we must treat each other as family should. We must learn to be kind to one another. <music>